You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining me for tonight's conversation. I am super excited to bring you this interview tonight with Christian music legend, Chuck Gerard. How often do you get to talk to a living legend? And we are going to talk all about hippie culture, the early days of Calvary Chapel and the Jesus movement, and really take a look at the question, do we need another Jesus movement? Uh, Chuck has some interesting things to say about that. I also wanted to take a minute at the top here to thank everyone for writing in with your comments and feedback on the stream that I did two weeks ago about Christian parenting in the age of woke culture. I'm so glad that so many of you found that conversation to be helpful. And like I said, when I did the stream, I'm trying to make friends with this talk. Um, it was it was a little bit of an experiment. So I loved hearing um, how it was helpful to so many of you. If you missed that stream, you can still catch it on a replay, Facebook, YouTube, and wherever you stream your podcasts. So if you've never heard of Chuck Gerard, maybe you have heard of his famous daughter, Elisa Childers. She recorded and toured back in the early 2000s with the band Zoe Girl. And in my opinion, Elisa is one of the most important Christian apologists of our time. She's doing very valuable work addressing the errors of progressive Christianity. A couple of months ago, she sent me a copy of her father's autobiography, Rock and Roll Preacher, because she knows I'm a complete nerd about the Jesus movement. So uh, to start things off here, I wanted to get in the Wayback Machine for a minute and play a little sample as we listen to music pioneer Chuck Gerard from 1979. Sometimes hallelujah Sometimes praise the Lord Sometimes gently sing Our hearts in one accord Oh, let us lift our voices Look toward the sky and start to sing Oh, let us now return His love Just let our
music legend Chuck Gerard. And with that, let's watch part one of my conversation with Chuck Gerard. I'm excited today to talk to music legend Chuck Gerard. I read your book, Rock and Roll Preacher. I'm a little bit of a nerd about the Jesus movement. And so I had so much fun reading the book. It's really a deep dive into your life and journey from drugged out hippie to pioneer of contemporary Christian music. And in it, you document so much, uh, not only just your career, but also touching on the Jesus movement, the start of Calvary Chapel in the early days, the pioneering band Love Song. So I'm just so excited and honored uh, to talk to you today, Chuck. Maybe you could take us back to the beginning um, about, tell us a little about your background, where you were raised and kind of sure. your your faith uh, in, in your home. Well, I'm actually a California native. I was actually born in downtown LA and uh, I lived my younger years in Southern California. And then uh, my dad died. My mom remarried. We moved up to Northern California, San Francisco specifically, and wound up in a little town called Santa Rosa, where my music experience started there in junior high and high school. But I was raised Catholic. And I, you know, when I was pretty young, the doctrine was different. I, I think they changed it over the years. But, uh, you know, you they said that you would go to hell for eating meat on Friday. And I thought, if I'm going to hell for eating meat on Friday, I'm going to go out and find some women and drink some wine and some whiskey. And uh, so I started my wanton life when I was about 15 years old. And that continued on through my, you know, really my adult years until I came to the Lord on one drug or another. But that was my my early um, orientation. It was very religious. It was I didn't feel necessarily connected to God in any real way, but I did take it seriously. It was something I, I you know, I wanted to explore more deeply. And then when I got into the hippie thing, that began a, a deeper spiritual search that uh, eventually led me to my Christian faith. Now you are part of what we now call a, a male doo-wop band. Um, I know you had a couple of radio hits with them. Tell us, talk to us a little bit about what factors went into you going into the music business and forming that band. The, the, my, my connection to music started way back when I was really young. I, we had a 78 uh, phonograph and my mom had some what we called albums. That's where albums came from in those days because they really were literally uh, 78 records and sleeves. Uh, it was technically an album, and then that you know that name stuck over the years. But uh, I would listen to her seventy eights, uh, and I remember the irony of it is Gene Autry, which is country and western, yep. and Mario Lanza, which is opera singing, and so that kind of got me into music. But I didn't think about playing music till junior high school or so when I heard Elvis, Elvis Presley the first time, and I knew I thought I thought I can't be Elvis, but I got to do something in music. So that started me putting a little group together in junior high. We uh, made a little, what they call a demo record, which shows what your group sounds like. And we went down to Hollywood. We had a list of contacts at I think four different record labels in Hollywood that a DJ that we had met had put together for us. So we went down and we knocked on doors and actually one of the labels signed us and we had a couple of hits 1961 and 62. I was in a, my group was called the Castells, which didn't really, it means castle, but it didn't mean anything to us. It was a name we picked up because we needed a name very quickly. And one of the guys in the group said, well, I used to play with a group called the Castells and they're no longer playing. Let's just take that name. And then we never changed it. 
So tell us the next kind of step in your journey. You know, how did you get songs on the radio? I know you even played with some famous people before they were famous. So tell us a little bit more about this season of your life. Yeah, when I put my group together in Santa Rosa there, uh, we went to Hollywood. We eventually moved down there to be closer to the, the business. And when we got our contract, um, we, we thought we were kind of like a, we wanted to be this sort of like an R&B band, you know, vocal group, like a doo-wop group, like, you know, but, but we were really white guys, you know, we didn't really have that sound, but we had our own unique sound, but we had a little piano player and we liked the sound of that kind of simple music. But when we got signed, the first thing they did was they, they brought us into the studio with a whole room full of musicians and they basically cut our piano player loose because the guy that was contracting the sessions they, these were the, the biggest people in town not just the guy that, that did the orchestrations and contracted the sessions but the players were people like Glenn Campbell and Leon Russell before they were famous I didn't even know who they were I just knew they were the top guys in Hollywood because that's what our record company hired but it changed our sound <clears throat> and instead of being this kind of more like a you know, I don't know if people remember how the early 50s doo-wop records were. They're like a piano and a bass. That was it, you know. Uh, all of a sudden, we had strings and we had all this stuff that uh, filled our sound out. And uh, actually, we came out sounding more like the Letterman, who actually came later. Yet we're kind of in the middle between doo-wop and kind of vocal pop, you know, that came later, California pop. So we were in that little kind of uh, cusp there. So our, our records were more polished and commercial, but uh, those were the musicians that we used, were those kind of guys. Hal Blaine that played the drums on Be My Baby, which is one of the all-time classics, and just people like that. Of course, at that time, we didn't know. they. Now they're the wrecking crew, and they're famous in their, old, you know, in their, in their legend. Many of them are dead now, of course, but... Uh, they're very famous uh, players that um, started out, you know, that we started out with making our records at, at a big studio called Gold Star, where every record in the world was made. All the Righteous Brothers, Phil Spector records, Beach Boys were made in that studio. It doesn't exist today, but uh, what, a, what an awesome time, you know, for a young musician to all of a sudden, who was a fan. I listened to all these records I loved and I had 45s and I kept, you know, data on who published, who wrote. I was very interested in all that kind of music. And now here I am playing this kind of music, having a record on the radio. It was very, very heady stuff for a young guy from Santa Rosa. Now, I know that kind of the next movement of your life was going into the whole hippie scene. How did you go from being in kind of more of a straight-laced doo-wop group into becoming a hippie and moving to Hawaii and dropping acid. That gave me a little taste of, of success in music. You know, it, these, these were chart records on Billboard. We didn't go to number one or anything, but we had top 20, two top 20 records. And so it gives you enough of a taste of success to continue on. And so that's what I was doing. And then uh, this, the hippie movement thing came along in mid sixties, early mid sixties. And, um, uh, I started to see all this publicity on these people who were dropping out of society and growing their hair long to look like Jesus. And I remember being specifically impressed or whatever by uh, interested, I guess, in one picture that was in like Look magazine, I think, 
of a hippie with long hair and the Jesus beard and the whole thing looking into a light bulb as if he was seeing, you know, the universe. And I thought, what is making these people tick? I was a pretty straight guy at that point. I mean, I was into alcohol, but, you know, we were in groups that we kept our hair cut very trim and no beards or anything. And we all wore uniforms and we had choreography and the whole thing. Uh, drugs other than alcohol were really not around in my day. It was if people were doing those drugs, they were private about it. But then all of a sudden, you know, when the Beatles came out and said that they had dropped LSD and everybody started to get a little more uh, unguarded about their drug usage, um, I got more interested. And I thought, well, you know, I, I need to figure out what marijuana is. I got uh, some marijuana and that kind of changed my life in a weird way because I liked the experience so much. I thought, why did I waste all this time and money on alcohol? And we should have found this sooner, you know. And I want to be careful here, as I am in the book, that uh, the Bible says that there's pleasure in sin for a season, and, but the end thereof is death. So I don't want anybody to think I'm glorifying my drug experience, but I'm telling you truthfully, it was, you know, it was a, it was a fun thing at that time. And then uh, I got a hold of a tab of LSD, and that was kind of what really turned the tide because there was this seeming, now I recognize it as a counterfeit, but yet a seeming connection to the spirit world that was really different from anything I'd experienced. And I, all of a sudden it felt like, well, there, I know there's something after death now, you know, there's something going on here. There's something, there's another dimension called the spirit world. And I want to find out more about it. What was it that you think you were really searching for? Was it just trying to escape pain? Were you looking for uh, some version of human connection? Like, what was it that you think pushed you further and further into the hippie culture and the drug culture at that time? When I took my first LSD, it was like a light switch turned on and I saw that there was another dimension to the world and to life, you know. And again, as I say, it was counterfeit, but it was, to me, it was a very real connection. And all of a sudden, some of my Catholic kicked back in uh, about going to hell, that kind of stuff. And I thought, man, if there's, I don't know if there's a hell, but if there is one, I don't want to go there. So I better check this out. And so really what happened was all of a sudden my priorities changed. I think, you know, I, I wasn't escaping pain. I, I to, to be very candid about it, most of my drug experiences were for pleasure. I, I wasn't one of those guys that was, you know, I had my share of pain being raised uh, when I was being raised. I had, like any kid, I had a rather dysfunctional family and I did have my problems, but I wasn't escaping pain. I just liked altered consciousness, I guess you might say. So when this happened, all of a sudden, this idea of God became more serious. And I thought, I have to, here's exactly what I thought. I have to find out about what, who is God. If there is no God, I need to know that. If God is the Christian God, I need to know that. If he's the you know, Eastern God, whatever. And then eventually it was interesting because as a, as a commune with our Bible studies, we came across what we called, and I call it today, the hippie gospel around Matthew 6, take no thought for tomorrow for tomorrow has evil unto itself. And that was how we wanted to live. You know, hey, we'll live for the day and um, let tomorrow take care of itself. And, but there were also, we didn't know about a promise. We didn't know what a promise was, but I saw in the Bible around that area of, of Matthew 6, 7 in there, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened, those scriptures. And I thought, wow, you know, if there really is a God and he's fair, 
and he's honest and just. If I seek then according to this, I will find. And if I knock, the door will be opened. So I determined there wasn't anything more important. It was not, it wasn't important what I did for a living or whether I got married or when I got married or had kids. What was important was my eternal destiny. And I determined at that point to find God, find out who he was, if he was there, if he's a real person, then he would communicate with me. And I started to actually talk to God as if he was there, even though I wasn't convinced he was. And uh, so I became very serious very quickly. And it was it was just a, a kind of like a wake up call that you need to get this together because life is short and you need to figure this out. I think that a lot of people who are younger than me, um, you know, and it, people that I talk to that are like 40 and below, they don't really know too much about the hippie movement, the Jesus movement, and all of that. And so I'm wondering, I, I'd really like to maybe explore some of that a little bit deeper, because as part of your conversion, you began to interact with people from Calvary Chapel in the very mm -hmm. early days of that church. And that was instrumental in helping you find your way into Christianity specifically. Maybe you can talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, let me dig back into how the what we would call the separate from the Jesus movement now a little earlier was this hippie movement. This was the way I analyzed the hippie movement is it was a unique, possibly unique to the future as well for, for the reason I'm going to tell you in a minute. This was a counterculture movement that was unlike anything maybe in the history of the world because of so many people being involved, just world population alone and the amount of people that were connected to the whole hippie underground thing. It was driven by the music of the Beatles and uh, Bob Dylan and people that, that we thought were musical prophets and then the drug experience, right? So what, what it was was this collective kind of um, all over the world, people that were dropping acid or taking other drugs reading the Bible, reading Eastern philosophies, trying to put it all together. Uh, I found out that not everybody was as serious as we were, but there was a lot of people who were spiritually seeking. In fact, spirituality came to the forefront in the press, the media, the whole thing. And uh, all of a sudden, this worldwide movement of people moving about the same pace uh, came to the end around the end of 1969, when kind of the answers ran out because there were no answers up to that point. You know, if, if you, I'm sure some people really found Jesus through, through that search before then, but there was, most of the people were kind of being, were following the musicians and other, you know, Timothy Leary and different books. And uh, there hadn't been an answer. And about 1969, I think there was a lot of people that were sitting on this, this, this precipice of, you know, we climbed this mountain and where do we go from here? And we didn't know where to go. And then all of a sudden we start hearing about Calvary Chapel and, and Jesus and hippies getting saved. And we're kind of going, what's going on? You know, maybe this is, we didn't know where to go from there, but we started to hear this buzz. And for me, what would happen is we would pick up hitchhikers along Pacific Coast Highway to get free drugs. You know, a lot of kids carried, you know, younger people carried a bag of weed with them. And then you pick them up and they hand you a joint. So that was kind of part of the reason that we picked up hitchhikers, although we were also peace and love and we wanted to be helpful and loving and all that. But that was the little reward, right? All of a sudden, we're picking up hip hippies and they're saying, hey, man, uh, we found Jesus. You know, uh, Jesus changed our life. And he said, well, where did you find him? You know, we've been looking for him for three years. 
And it was always coming up Calvary Chapel, Calvary Chapel. So all of a sudden, this, this kind of thing that was didn't really have a, um, a resolution yet, this drug search that so many in the, and there were literally, I, I wouldn't want to quantify it, but at least there had to be hundreds of thousands of people were on the same trip. Uh, started to connect either either they did or didn't connect to this message of Jesus. You know, some of some of the people at that point went back into the world, as we would say, and became the yuppies and started businesses. But there was a lot of serious seekers that were connecting to this this deeper message about Jesus. And then, of course, because of Calvary Chapel being involved, which when we heard about it, there was only one in the country in the one in Orange County under Chuck Smith as the pastor. But they had hippie preachers, specifically Lonnie Frisbee, who was the first hippie preacher at Calvary Chapel. And we liked the idea of, hey, we can go to this church where people like us are preaching and people like us go to church and nobody wears suits. Let's check this out. So uh, I, we, we went up separate times, different, different uh, you know, we didn't all go up together and find the Lord, but I went up separately one night. I, I really was hesitant. I was very suspicious because of my bad experience with Christianity, my earlier experience and thinking I was going to hell and all that. And I thought, well, I don't know. I'd rather, I'd rather find God on a mountain with a guru, you know, than some guy that's a preacher, you know, like I, I left that. I don't want that again. But I thought, you know, it was my own, in a way, my own spiritual pride that trapped me because I thought, well, if I'm going to be a fair and honest seeker, I need to look into this. So let's get it over with. And I thought, I'll go visit, and then I can either chalk it off my list and move on, or maybe I'll find out what's there. So I remember driving around the church around three times, and it was about a mile around the church. Uh, the church was a, a little tiny church out in the middle of a then vineyard, or, uh, uh, grape vineyards, and kind of a, <clears throat> now it's not rural, but then it was a little bit rural, a little country church. And I drove, I drove around once and I think, ah, I don't want to go in and I keep going. And, and then I drive around again. I think, well, it should be now or never, but I don't know if it's now. And so finally about my third time around, I thought, okay, just park the car, go in. You've got to deal with this. And I did just that. I parked the, whatever I was driving and I walked in, I, I went to the, to the back row so I could make my escape if I didn't like what was going on. And all I can explain to you is that uh, the Lord really got a hold of me that night. I was sitting in the back row. The first thing I remember was these young hippie kids singing choruses they'd written. Now, I was kind of a musical snob. You know, I like Pink Floyd and those kind of cool bands from the, from the 70s or the 60s at this point. And um, I couldn't figure out why is this kind of substandard? These kids sitting there playing guitars kind of badly sometimes, <laughs> singing these songs, penetrating me so deeply. Of course, I didn't know about the anointing. I didn't know about the power of God. But all of a sudden, I was really being moved by this music. And then uh, I don't even remember exactly what Pastor Chuck, pre he was there that we didn't get, I didn't get Lonnie that night. I got Pastor Chuck and a uh, little bit to my disappointment. And um, I just, the Lord just reduced me to, as Ken Gullickson wrote, Jesus reduced me to love. And I sat on the back, uh, back pew. I had this, this kind of religious philosophy that it came out of the Beatles music, the different ideas of the day that, you know, the, the kind of the new age has been around for, for forever, that we are all one connected by the universe where universal consciousness, you know, and uh, Donovan, all these people that, 
wrote music about this kind of stuff. So my my idea was no man could be free till all men were free. Okay. And that night I realized this is an individual proposition. I have to find God for me. And the Holy Spirit was directing me in this. And so I committed my life to the Lord that night. And all this weight, because I was carrying this weight of thinking, you know, the whole world has to get saved and I got to do my part and I got to be my part of the salvation of the world so that we can all get it together and whatever is going to happen can happen. And all of a sudden I realized that I needed to do this for myself. And if I did it for myself, then I was doing my part. And um, that weight came off of me and I didn't actually go to the altar that night. Um, but I kind of made a deal with God. I said, you know, this, this is not what I expected. This seems very real. Something's going on here that I have to deal with. So I'll be here until you tell me different. And if this is just a stepping stone to the next level or whatever, you can take me out of this. And, you know, I've got nothing to lose. I'll stay here till you tell me different. And that was now how long? 1970. So 70 years ago, not 70, 50 years ago, whatever it is, uh, not doing uh, 60 years ago not doing my math very good but uh so i never looked back and then the group started and i started my ministry and that was sort of the the way i got in to being connected to all that all right so we are talking to chuck gerard about his autobiography a rock and roll preacher and in part two of the conversation with him we're going to talk more about the jesus movement and digging into that a little bit. Um, but before I do that, I do want to let you know that um, I have opened registration on the online version of my hermeneutics class. I had so many requests from people wanting to know more information about the class. It's called How to Really Interpret the Bible. And it is 100% online. You do it at your own pace. It's a self-paced class. You're going to get 14 lessons, video teachings, printable lecture notes. You can follow along. You can do the homework assignments, but you will really learn the practical nuts and bolts of how to properly interpret the Bible. So for all the cost and details and how to register, just go to twoworlds.teachable.com. That's two worlds two worlds, all one word, dot teachable.com. And you can click on the course, how to really interpret the Bible. And you can see all the information there on how to register. Again, I had such a great time talking to Chuck Gerard, father of my friend, Elisa Childers. Now we started this with hearing Chuck ta- uh, sing from 1979, one of his very famous compositions, sometimes Alleluia. I remember growing up in church, singing that song. And I found this old recording. Elisa may never speak to me again after this. Here is Elisa singing that very same song with her sister and her nieces in this really cool clip. Sometimes gently singing 
very famous song that's so so fun um and now let's watch part two of my discussion with music legend chuck gerard as we talk about uh the question do we need a jesus movement for today let's watch it now what was it about calvary chapel that you think was able to speak to that hippie generation, to those people who were in that movement, because there are a lot of people that came out of the hippie movement through Calvary Chapel. And I'm just wondering, from your perspective, Mm -hmm. what was it that was unique about Calvary Chapel that was able to, to speak into that particular generation two words chuck smith okay absolutely i i've called i've said this to chuck's face chuck's gone to be with the lord as probably most people know but i said chuck you're the most open-minded closed-minded man i've ever met and what it was was that chuck was very closed-minded about doctrine and he didn't want people going off on these weird rabbit trails and going into these weird places with he called it hyper charismatic he called charismania and, but when it came to creative expression, he was very open and he was also very laid back and casual. He didn't have a preaching style. It was more like he was just sharing from his heart. And he, in my opinion, he was God's perfect man for the hippies at that time. Hmm. Uh, also, the fact that he would let hippie preachers have Bible studies. So that was attractive to us. So that's one factor that made Calvary Chapel ideal for what God wanted to do. The second uh, aspect of it was the the evangelistic zeal of the hippies. You know, we wrote in one of our songs, with one hand reach out to Jesus and with the other bring a friend. And the word got out like wildfire, especially not because our band got in place, but when our band got in place, it was like all the elements were there. We had a hippie band. We had a hippie preacher. We had hippies coming to church that were coming to church with straight people as well. It wasn't just, it wasn't all hippies. You know, that was part of the deal was how cool it was to look out from the platform and see this little old lady who just got out of the beauty parlor, sit next to a guy in a $500 suit, sit next to a hippie with bare feet and they're all arm in arm singing, we are one in the spirit, we are one in the Lord. That was very powerful, that image, you know? So it was a perfect atmosphere for God to do what he wanted to do. And that church grew 
without exaggeration from 200 to about 2000 in four months time because of the evangelistic zeal. These kids were going out in the highways and the byways and bringing their hippie friends. Hey, we found the answer. We've been seeking through drugs and it's not the answer. This is the answer. And so that place grew exponentially and it was a total move of God. If you go in, Chuck Smith did not have a program. In fact, he used to tell us, he'd say, people come in, they're looking, they, they want the same kind of, of thing to happen at their church. So they come in and say, oh, what's the program here, Pastor Smith? And he'd say, there's no program, it's the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what it was. And Chuck uh, was not a hippie type, is more what we would call a straight guy, but he had this ability to see that something was happening culturally here that he needed to agree with. So that's why he would let hippies play. And the music was anointed. It was powerful. And we had the Saturday night concerts where all the kids would come and, and certain guys would evangelize and have a message afterward and people would get saved in great numbers. And then we moved to the tent and the same thing happened for, for years. It was a, a perfect atmosphere. There were other churches that started to get involved as well. But I believe that Calvary was God's perfect choice at that time through the man, Chuck Smith, and the fact that he was open-minded enough to allow us to express our faith through our culture, through our music that was relevant to the culture. So those were the things that made it unique and God's choice, in my opinion. Is that then what becomes the Jesus movement more broadly is, you know, the Calvary Chapel was kind of at the tip of the spear of that, but then it, it morphs into this this larger nationwide movement of hippies coming to Jesus. I know, like, for example, Dr. Michael Brown, who I've had the pleasure of meeting, he he came out of the, the hippie movement and right. and, you know, became a Christian. Um, there's I had s several of my Talbot professors had had been hippies and had come to faith through the Jesus movement. And it just, it was a very unique time in American Christianity. Um, what, what do you see as being some of those, those key features that made that so unique? Well, you said an interesting uh, designation there, American. It was a, primarily an American phenomena. Didn't even catch up on into Canada till four or five years later. <laughs> Calvary was not where it started. I need to be clear about that because okay. it may have sounded like I'm saying that. There were a lot of un undercurrents up north. There were some intellectuals around Berkeley campus that were Christians that had a, um, things going in the house meetings, a guy named Ted Wise up there and, and uh, Jack Sparks that had the uh, Christian whatever that was apologetic kind of thing. Uh, there were things back east that were starting to blossom in where Phil Kagey was in, in the Midwest. So they were undercurrents, but what Calvary's role was, it became the media focal point. Nobody was covering it more from anywhere else. There were, there were documentaries where they'd go and they'd interview people from different areas of the country, but it did sort of converge all through Calvary Chapel where it became widely disseminated in the media. But <clears throat> it was primarily an American phenomenon. America was the only place with specifically Christian media. You know, a Christian radio station, TBN, those kind of things do not exist or did not then. <clears throat> like I say, they may now, but they did not exist in Europe, in other parts of the world. So you didn't have the way to get it out to the people. You know, it was uh, 
like you did in, in the US where, where it hit the news and became actually front page news in some areas. Uh, but it was a definitely still at the same time, definitely a world impacting, you know, revival. There's an interesting word. I've never understood the word revival because to me, if you're reviving something that already existed and it kind of went to sleep and you're reviving it, I'd, I'd say, you know, when people want, you know, describing it as the Jesus movement, it was to me more accurately described as a specific movement of, of Jesus. Now, Jesus is always moving, so don't get me wrong, but what we call a movement is where there is what is commonly called a revival, like the Welsh revival, or where God does a very powerful thing in a certain area at a certain time and impacts the world with it. So by that definition, I think the Jesus movement was every bit a, 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 a revival and a, a movement that affected the world. So I think it was by all definitions a revival because even though people might've come to the front and just said the prayer, countless people stayed faithful over the years. I, I wouldn't even begin to try to uh, quantify how many people are still walking with God from those days. Yeah. I know a lot of people that I do know, there's a huge amount of people, a huge percentage of them that have stayed faithful all these years. So for me, it was a revival. I'm not sure that many people have an appreciation for the enduring legacy of the Jesus movement. I mean, mm -hmm. there are parts of our evangelical culture that we just take for granted every day that that were really unheard of uh, before the Jesus movement. And I think that, you know, what you grew up in is kind of more traditional Christianity. And then along comes Calvary Chapel and, and contemporary Christian music and, and all of these things. I, I don't think people understand. Granted, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to name a couple and then, Maybe if you want to add some is, you know, the whole idea of, of singing these choruses that you were talking about earlier and, and not just singing out of hymn books. I mean, now we we take that for granted. Um, right. Home Bible studies, you know, that not everything was going to be centralized in a local church, but now you could have a home Bible study. The idea of baptizing people in the ocean you know, as somewhere outside mm -hmm. of a, a church building. I mean, that was that was relatively unheard of. What I think you're you know, in a more general sense, what you're saying is that what what the whole movement did was bring Christianity out into the highways and the byways mm. and took it out of the ghetto of the church. Um, I remember when I was being raised we heard that you don't talk religion or politics in public, you know, that's a private thing. Now, all of a sudden religion became the subject because of, again, because of the cultural impact of the Beatles and talking about, you know, George Harrison becomes a Hindu, it becomes news. So I think that what happened was it brought it out of the church into the trenches, which is the most positive thing. I love the idea of home groups. To me, that is one of the most powerful things that's come out of the whole thing that, that we don't need to have a mega church to find God. We can just have church in our home and, and it's, it's church, you know, it doesn't have to have a name. Uh, these first whatever it's just just a bunch of Christians meeting together and more back hearkening to the spirit of the book of Acts and um, so I think it, it kind of brought it into all phases of of life where people were more confronted with the idea of dealing with Jesus than they had ever been before and uh, I think that's very healthy and, and I think that I could probably think you know that of more instances of 
specific ones like you did. I can't right now, but those are the main ones. You know, the, it changed the music. You know, all of a sudden these organ things and it was more about, you know, the music we all related to. No, nobody Yeah, they brought in drums and, and guitars. Yeah. And, and I'm even thinking like this is when it first started because um, I was kind of I was born in 1970. But I remember, mm -hmm. you know, when the transition started happening of preachers preaching more informally, um, dressing more right. informally. I, but I see those things as really, um, you know, the dissemination of this ethos of making Christianity less formal, more personal. The whole idea of like having a personal relationship with with God, that really took hold during the time of the Jesus movement. Well put. That's exactly right. It, it deformalized it. I think that's the main thing. It made it more accessible to average people and, um, you know, more, uh, more, ex I think accessible is the word. And, you know, it's like just an image that comes to mind when you said <laughs> the dress and all that. One of the, the I, I think there's even a picture of this somewhere, you know, the hippie is sitting there, he has no shoes on and, you know, very casual clothes, and they were putting their toe up through the communion cup hole. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it was irreverent in a way. I, the great story from Chuck's, one of the great, there are a lot of great stories, but uh, there was a bunch of hippies and they, they had just put carpets in at Calvary Chapel. And uh, all, the, all the, the board members were, worried about the hippies dragging you know mud and oil in with their bare feet so they had in this one particular meeting where this instance happened they were keeping them in the lobby because they didn't let want to know what to do with them and they didn't want to let them in and chuck came to the studies what are all these kids doing out in the lobby and they said well we just put carpets in chuck and you know if they come in here with their bare feet they're going to get the carpet dirty and oily and full of mud and everything and chuck said well then let's take the carpet out that was the mentality. Let's remove the carpets. If we can't have the kids come in and be comfortable, uh, then let's get rid of the carpets. And that, that's part of the reason that she made Chuck who he was, because none of that stuff was important. I mean, it was, you know, it's you still want to have a nice looking church and all that, but it was no, not more important than the kids and the people. And I think that whole attitude, because Chuck only wore a suit on Sunday morning because he wanted to keep that tradition. And they did just the only meeting they had organ music too and that kind of thing he wanted to keep that much tradition but the rest of it was open season and and then all the churches started doing that and i think it casualed out maybe sometimes to a detriment because i think there's still a an element of my more formal raising in the catholic church of, of um you know of um uh liturgy and stuff that is a good thing that we could carry over and some of the the, the, the best churches I've ever visited have been mainline denominations that got the Holy Spirit a little more, you know, and yeah. they still had their liturgy, but they were open to, you know, healing and the different gifts and things. And so you don't want to get too far overboard. Don't want to get too familiar with God. He's worthy of our reverence. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with dressing up to meet with God. But uh, it was it was sort of a thing that was at the time needed to to kind of break that formal idea of what the church was and make it accessible to these kids who probably didn't even own a suit, you know, it couldn't have come to church if you made them dress up. So that was, I think, the purpose of it. So in your conversations with your daughter, Alisa Childers, I'm 
wondering if you've if you've reflected at all, you know, because there's kind of this this new movement today of people looking for spiritual answers and the growth of progressive Christianity is now, you know, people exiting the church or reimagining the faith. And I'm wondering if there's any wisdom from the Jesus movement or from what you lived through in the hippie era that you think could maybe, I don't know, just any wisdom that could help reach that culture today or bring revival, or is it just too different now? It's just that what we're facing now is just too different and, and there's really too much of a disconnect to, to maybe bring wisdom from 50 years ago into our modern conversation. Well, the culture is different. And one of the things I may have even left out of my example of coming to the brink of, of this disillusionment in the late 60s, um, once we did connect with Christianity, there was a huge number of us because we came through the same cultural experience of the, Jesus, of the uh, hippie movement and the drug movement. And in a lot of ways, the people that came into the kingdom through and became the Jesus movement were low-hanging fruit. We were ready. You know, you didn't have to really convince us. We were looking for truth and Christianity has truth. But I've observed because there's a lot of this now, the new Jesus movement thing that you're seeing in, in media right now where people are gathering at the same place we, you know, Pirate's Cove or down at Huntington Beach and they're calling it the new Jesus movement. I, I don't mind that you feel you're, you know, that you're having some, some, some event that is affecting people's lives in a positive way, but you can't produce a Jesus movement just because you declare it to be so. You know, what happened in our day was completely, no one could have planned that. No one could have done it by the, by the strength of the flesh. It was a work of God. And here's the difference now, why, why I think that, it, that we can't really have the same thing happening, you know, uh, the way it did in the, because that's what people want to do. They want to repeat what happened in the 70s. They want to repeat that huge worldwide impact of the Jesus movement, what we call the Jesus movement. But now we don't have a single counterculture that's affecting the whole world at the same mm. time. You know, you, it's all like little compartments you have skinheads and you have white supremacists and you have goths and you have all these different little counterculture groups that are now there were always smaller counterculture groups that existed, but never, in my opinion, never had the world seen such a wide, widely impacting worldwide movement as the drug culture of the 60s. And so now God's got to, in my opinion, God's got to do it a different way. You know, it's it's like he's got to deal with each group on an individual level. And as he always does, people have to be dealt with on an individual level. If it ever gets to the the point where so the the where where it all is newsworthy again is a matter of how God would do it. Here's another thing. I kind of got distracted because I got on this point now. We see all this through our American lens. You know, you hear people say, well, boy, I'll bet you, you know, if we keep on like this, we're going to have the church is going to be persecuted. Well, just go to Afghanistan or go to some areas of the world. They're getting their heads cut off for, for the Lord. They're in prison for Jesus. So we do tend to here in America, view things through our American lens. And uh, so when they say a Jesus movement, I think there is a Jesus movement right now throughout the world. But I don't think it's going to be a thing where the, because it was so unique that hippies were getting saved. See, now if, if a bunch of people got saved in the U.S. 
it wouldn't be that newsworthy. You know, nobody would really care that much. And that's what carried a lot of it was the fact that we had this publicity promoting our movement and then people were getting saved through that publicity. So I don't know if we'll ever have it quite the same way. And I don't know if you could really, if you're thinking of being a duplicate or, or relevant to the 60s, uh, 70s Jesus movement, I, I don't like it when people tag the new Jesus movement. And I know there's a lot of people believing for that and wanting that, but we need, I, I, my opinion is we need to just kick back, do our part, and God's going to do his part, and people are going to get saved, and there will be some kind of movement. But, you know, even the Bible says the kingdom comes without observation. And uh, I think a lot's going to happen as God sneaks it in. Not that he's sneaky. I don't mean it that way. But as God works behind the scenes with people's lives to the point that we can't even quantify it. I think there's, that is the kind of thing that will go on more toward, toward these end, end of the end times. Because I've reflected on this question, you know, and I think I've come to a similar conclusion as you, is that we, we really need a new work of God, you know, what is going to be unique. I don't know who that voice is going to be like Chuck Smith was, but the uncompromised proclamation of the gospel. I I think one of my concerns in our current culture is that with the rise of progressive Christianity and even secular social justice subculture, there has been such a watering down of the gospel. And I think that the prayer that I'm having is, you know, someone who really has a vision for that the, the, the gospel really can change people's lives and that there can be an uncompromised commitment to that because that's what I really see in Chuck Smith was he, he seems to have really believed the gospel could change people's lives. Like, you know, that, that, that was a real thing. They didn't have to just change a bunch of external structures, um, but rather looking at, you know, Jesus changes things. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. The genuine stuff hardly ever makes the news, right? It's kind of like what I, my viewpoint on the Grammys or the music that wins the Grammys is not the best in the world. If you want to, We'll talk secular music here. If you want to listen to really great secular music, it's not going to be, you know, there's some great music that wins an award, but but it's represented to the world as these groups are the hot groups and they're the best and all that, and they win the prize. But really good music is on another level. It's kind of the same thing with the church right now. The stuff we see in the news, the people who are on the TV and all that aren't necessarily representative of what God's really doing on the earth, especially with the church going off the rails like it is. As you know, I'm pretty familiar with that from having a daughter like Elisa and understanding <laughs> what's really going on in the church. So it's like I've told, you know, here's a little example that may uh, provide a more of an illustration. I've come into these to be a guest. I, most of the pastors that have me in do not have mega churches anymore. You know, that I'm not in that circuit anymore. So let's say 10 years ago, I'd come into a little church and some guy, I'm making this up kind of, but it's exemplary of real conversations I've had with pastors. You know, he said, well, we've been here 10 years and we've grown to 200. And this Joe Blow came in six months ago with all the flash and the lights and the smoke machines. He got 5,000 people. And I'll say, man, I'd rather pastor 200 world changes than 5,000 Q-sitters, you know, that come there because it's easy. It's uh, 
It's none, none of the suffering is preached. It's all the cool stuff. We can have this, we can have that. And I encourage them in that way. I say, you know, in the Bible, there weren't mega churches that I know of. Um, Jesus preached to 5,000 at a time. You want to call that a mega church, maybe. But by and large, the church was house groups and things. So I encourage these pastors. You may, if, here's the deal you said the word uh, uncompromising. If you preach an uncompromising gospel that covers the whole gospel, which is not just the good part, but the suffering part, you're not going to attract a big crowd, in my opinion. You'll never grow to over 200. But that's not a bad thing. Like I say, I'd rather. Uh, have 200 world changers in my congregation or people that are really honestly seeking God than 5,000 weekend warriors, so to speak. So there's that thing going on in big numbers in the, in the, in the, in the world right now, these uh, famous churches and stuff that's on TV did not, does not necessarily represent what God's doing in the world. And that's why I say the kingdom comes without observation. And I believe that God is quietly working behind the scenes, unlike, you know, maybe ever before, as far as we know, but it's not covered by the the media anymore. So it's a different season right now. It's a different season. I'm not discouraged by it uh, because I know that God has, has got it together. You know, if I didn't believe that, I could be very discouraged. Once again, I want to encourage everyone to check out Chuck's book, Rock and Roll Preacher. It's available everywhere and you can connect with him at chuckgerard.com. Thank you so much for doing this with me. It's been a, a fun little romp. <laughs> Through the yeah. 60s and 70s. So thank yeah, well, you so much. you're a much. good interviewer. Oh, thank you. I've done yeah. a couple hundred of them over the years. Sure. So thank you so much, Chuck. Thanks for having me, Krista. All right, we're back live. That was so much fun. Thank you, Chuck Gerard, for talking to me. And once again, his book is Rock and Roll Preacher. It's his autobiography. So if you're into the 60s and 70s, you're kind of interested in the origins of Calvary Chapel, the Jesus Movement, Contemporary Christian Music. You can learn all about it there, and it is a good time. Now, as I close out tonight, I do want to tell you about an amazing opportunity with my friend Natasha Crane and her ministry, Grassroots Apologetics for Parents. Now, I did a GAP group. He called, she calls it GAP um, a year and a half ago, and it was just a great kickoff to helping to um, equip and train parents. GAP is, is this brilliant idea of Natasha Crane to kind of stand in the gap between parents and kids. And Natasha wants to come alongside parents to equip them to help train their kids in the Christian worldview. Now, I know what you're thinking. Uh, you're like, I'm not an expert in apologetics. That's okay. Uh, it's really leading a discussion and a conversation. And now's a good time to think about maybe you could start a group at your church uh, in the fall. And you can fill out a little interest form on the GAP website. You can look for grassroots apologeticsforparents.com and find out more about the program. But this would be a great way to begin to resource the people in your life to find some some other parents that you can be in life with in your church and come together and help each other and learn together and then disciple your kids together. So go check out what Natasha is doing at grassroots apologetics for parents 
gapchapter.com and uh, think about starting a gap chapter. Like I said, I did one a year and a half ago. I actually did mine on Zoom. So if you don't have people in your area, think about resourcing through your social media network and putting together a group and meet on Zoom. That's how I, I ran my group. So I just couldn't really find many parents in my church who were wanting to have those conversations, but it was a great time. So go check out what they are doing. And with that, I am going to leave you with one last clip from Chuck Gerard and his group, Love Song. follow Theology Mom on Facebook and like, comment, and subscribe on YouTube. Don't forget to catch Krista next week for more theology fun on Theology Mom and all the things. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.